0: Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti and this is episode 128 of Yoga Land. So this is super unusual. I am doing this intro from a hotel room while on vacation with my family. We don't often take real vacations. I know a lot of you out there can relate to this. You visit family with your time off or you have vacations that there's a work aspect involved of the vacation, which we do so often with Jason. This is the one trip a year that we do as a family together where we try to work as little as possible, and it's awesome and relaxing. And uh, the reason we're able to do it is because we do a retreat on Maui the week before which we just wrapped up. That is where we recorded the episode that you're about to listen to. We recorded it with the students from the retreat there live with us, and it was a lot of fun, and I appreciated the support so much, and I appreciated seeing some old familiar faces on the retreat, and I appreciated meeting lots of Yogaland listeners on the retreat. It's such a delight for me to get to meet you guys in person. And so we talk a little bit about The meaning of going on retreat, why go on retreat. And also we answered questions from students who were on the retreat. And it just so happened that all of the questions that came up were around the theme and topic of backbends, just several different questions about backbends. So we really kind of lucked out because we have a little bit of a themed episode here. I hope you enjoy it. And we're going to be announcing the dates for next year's Maui retreat soon. I know that we always confirm those dates when we're here on retreat, So those we will be announcing soon. If you are not on our newsletter, jump on our newsletter because that's where we announce it first. I realized on this retreat, I'm putting out positive juju into the universe that in 2020, we will be doing a retreat somewhere in Italy. What do you think about that? That would be good, right? All right. So Please remember to rate and review the podcast if you enjoy it. Also, the podcast is now available on Spotify so that if that's your jam, you can find it there and enjoy the episode. Hi, Jason. Hi, Andrea. How's it going? Good. I'm wondering, you've been, we are in Maui at the Lumeria, the lovely Lumeria Retreat Center. Yep. On your retreat. And I'm wondering if you experience any relaxation while you're leading a retreat?
1: Here I do, I do. I think one of the reasons I do is I have normalized really long days of teaching. So I teach so many 100 hour intensives and those are often in cities and I have to commute to the studio, to and from the studio. And it's like from nine to 5.30 all day long, right? So because I have so normalized that, for me now, teaching two hours and 15 minutes, two hours and a half in the morning, and then two hours in the late afternoon without having to do anything else, no commute, no food, any of that, it's actually pretty easy. Like it's pretty enjoyable and pretty easy. It's not like being on vacation. And one of the challenges of retreat is there are other factors that that I don't have control of, Mm -hmm. right? There's... Food. There's setting. There's accommodation. There's personnel. You know what I mean. So, roosters. like, I <laughs> roosters <laughs> here a ton of them, right? So, I kind of feel responsible for things that I can't necessarily affect. Whereas in a teacher training setting, that's not the case,
0: right? 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 right.
1: right? But in general, yeah, this for me is there's an intensive quality to it. But it is much more relaxing than the other intensive settings in which I teach. Mm -hmm. And And I just really like it here. Yeah, the
0: setting is so – just being here. Like I noticed we got here – Sophia and I got here last night and we went upstairs to the room and she immediately said, can we go outside to the lanai? And we went outside and our super not quiet child was honestly all of a sudden like really quiet and just listening to all the sounds. And she sat down on the couch and she said – I really want to sleep out here tonight. <laughs> and I said, well, the rooster's going to wake you up, so you can't. No, it is like, it's its a great setting to yeah, drop into. Yeah, for sure. I wanted to also just, I'm putting you on the spot a little bit. but Is I this just, a
1: gotcha question coming?
0: Oh my gosh, gotcha media. That is such an old term right I know. now. Gosh.
1: What's the hot take?
0: Okay. No, I just think that, even though it's been a really long time since I personally have been on retreat... I think it's really important, an important part of practice. And and early in my practice, I did a lot of retreats. I did not necessarily super long, month-long retreats, but I did week-long retreats, or I would do a weekend or even a day just to reset and to kind of drop into my practice. And so I would love for you to talk about, after all these years of teaching, why you still lead retreats.
1: Okay, good question. I only lead one a year. So there's a lot of teachers that travel a bunch, like I do and that do a bunch of retreats. For me, I only do one a year, and I went a few years without doing any retreats.
0: Oh, yeah, that's right.
1: I went for a period where I didn't, right? And the thing that I really love about being the teacher on a retreat and then some of what I'm hopeful that my students get value from is, and I was talking with this with someone last night, is for me teaching a retreat, it's almost like, teacher training light. Hmm. We have six days. We have somewhere between 35 and 40 students on this retreat every year. And almost everyone here, or definitely everyone in this group and, and most groups, most years, are either teachers and or like connoisseurs of this practice. And so it gives me a contained specific audience for about 30 hours of practice one of the biggest challenges that i think that most teachers have is the coming and going of students. and so it's very difficult when you're teaching drop-in students, it's very difficult to build some progressive content, right? things that build on top of each other in a way that in an academic setting you always would, right? so when i'm at home i do my best to bridge that gap by being very consistent for a month, but Even if you took a month of classes with me, that's still going to be less time than the amount of classes you're going to take Mm -hmm. in a six-day retreat. And so it gives me as a teacher literally a captive audience that is fairly homogenous in their intentions. It gives me time to build a story. It gives me time to build a narrative, right? It gives me time to figure out as a teacher and as a student right now, what are the... You know, maybe what are the five to 10 techniques that I'm most interested in passing on, I can spend the whole week building that architecture and reinforcing it. And for me, as, as the educator part of a teacher, it's just a very valuable environment to teach in. The most important thing about developing a yoga practice and developing within this discipline is consistency. But it's also very difficult to be consistent as a householder because you have so many different things that are clawing for your attention. And if you only have time for a 60 minute class here and there, a 90 minute class here and there, or an online class here and there, that's way better than nothing. It it is. Right? So Mm -hmm. it's not to in any way take that away, but there's something about the immersive quality of getting mostly away from daily life. And settling into a practice that I think just takes us to a—it's kind of cliche to say, but just kind of takes us to a deeper, more subtle internal experience.
0: It's not cliche. It's, it's. Well, there's a. Re- I think it's the whole reason to do it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: yeah. You just get to drop into a deeper. I think a deeper level of the practice, but also a deeper level within the self. You know, for me, it takes a long time to clear away some of the artifice. Right. You know what I mean? Like I have a ton of artifice.
0: I was wondering, you know, we live in the city, you teach in the city. I was wondering if you notice a difference between the energy of your city drop-in classes versus when people start the first day here and then a few days in. And then a few more days in, just the energy in the room or the energy of the students.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I think they're really even hard to compare. The reality here is like people are tired by now because I we work pretty hard. Right. You know what I mean? That's there's there's always the option to the not middle, work hard. Yes. I,
0: right. It's probably the middle is like the nicest spot for people. Sure. And then by the end, you're kind of like, okay, I'm cooked. I'm ready Actually, to go you know
1: what? I have said this forever. Day three and a half to four and a half is the meltdown day. Oh. <laughs> this half is happens yes. all the time. Because look, as great as it is to be pulled out of our regular environment, you get to a place where that's actually uncomfortable and your habits are trying to pull you back. Your habits come back up. And when you're doing practice, again, you know, it's like I am very pragmatic and I don't feel like you know, my intention is not to break people's psyches down, but that is many people's intention but like it's not my intention to to sort of break down and manipulate and that being said, there's just no doubt when you are away from home, when you are away from those sort of those poles that help you maintain habit for good and bad, and when you're when you're doing a practice like this for somewhere between 3 to 5 hours a day it unravels part of you and it and it's supposed to it has to i think that this is something that we that we forget about the discipline of yoga is that it is supposed to reveal the deeper habitual layers that are there mm-hmm. and in order to do that you kind of got to push your buttons mm-hmm. you know so you have to get to that place where all those buttons are pushed And what I find on retreat is like, that's a couple days in. Mm -hmm. And then what starts to happen is the mind starts to process like, oh, this is the last day. This is the last day and a half. And mind already starts to sort of anticipate what's coming. And sort of relaxes again. Mm-hmm. Not not that it was unrelaxed, but I, I think that that is a process for everyone. Anytime you're away,
0: mm-hmm. yeah. oh my gosh, yeah. I mean, even yeah. when you just go on vacation, yeah. Sometimes there's like pain when you're on vacation. Cy- there's of like, cycles. I should be doing. I should be. I should be doing this. I should be doing that.
1: My real pain is that I have to do laundry. I'm at the laundry pain cycle, and <laughs> I have no way to do laundry. I'm not going to a laundromat. No.
0: Nope. We can talk about that later.
1: Got it. Yeah. <laughs> But I don't have any – I'm just – what I'm saying is I'm not in a current state of emotional pain, and that's a good thing.
0: <laughs> good. That's a good thing. If laundry is your biggest pain, yeah, I, I'm getting it. I get it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Point A to point B. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about some questions that have come up with from your students that yeah. are here on retreat with us yeah. today, right yeah. now. So the first question is how do you approach teaching breathing in a vinyasa class, which is such a good question because yeah. I'm sure it has – In the popular evolution of yoga, I bet it's changed a lot. And I don't know if it's changed for you, but I bet.
1: The first thing to remember in vinyasa-based yoga is that movement is largely a device to set the cadence of your breathing. So movement is a device to establish a breathing pattern. Breathing pattern is a device to establish a mental pattern. Mental pattern is a device to have an effect on the nervous system. So we have to kind of see the hierarchical chain of importance here, right? And so I think that the number one thing that I do to help students breathe in the context of vinyasa is consistent rhythmic movement at a specific pace, right? And one of the things where I think that we're hugely missing the mark a lot in contemporary vinyasa yoga is we're saying that breath is the most important thing, but we're moving at a pace that is much more rapid than slow, deep breathing. And so one of the things that I've actually noticed is that vinyasa yoga has the potential, right, pause on the hate mail, potential, to actually make people way worse breathers because it can induce stress and pace that make people breathe rapidly, and actually totally undermine what the essence of this discipline is. So that's the first thing we have to understand, which is not all pacing is reasonable pacing for this particular discipline. So what I really think of is I want to move at a pace for a pretty long period of time without going too fast, without going too slow. And the difficulty for me Is also without giving too many technical cues. Because what happens is if you move at a consistent pace, which is the pace of a slow, deep in breath and a slow, deep out breath, then you have the metronome like consistency established. But if you're someone like me and you like to give a lot of details, Even if you move at that really good pace, if you're given too many details, you're going to overstimulate the verbal centers and people are going to be holding their breath, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So for me, it's a combination of finding the rhythmic movement, being consistent with that rhythmic movement, and not trying to give too many technical cues or too many combinations of movements that's going to take people off of their cadence. Mm -hmm. So that's, I think, the first one and two things. I would say the last thing, and I don't think I'm very good at this, to be totally frank, right? I'm good at this in one context, and I'm not good at it in any other context, which is when I teach beginning vinyasa programs, like four-week vinyasa programs, I have people do specific ujjayi breath at the beginning and end of every class. Mm -hmm. And I go through the whole thing of saying, and you know, because for me, I think one of my biggest fears in life is to to be on a corporate retreat. Oh yeah. And have to like role play a scenario. Did like, you know
0: that Sophia has to role play at school all the time? No
1: wonder she doesn't want to and go to she school. She started
0: saying to me, Mom, can we role play this?
1: Oh God. <laughs> so I understand the utility of it, but this is like literally, I, this is my nightmare scenario.
0: Okay. Okay. Yes. So
1: what I tell people all the time is like, okay. We have to role-play something right now to teach you how to breathe. I want you to imagine that you're holding a mirror, like a compact mirror in your hands, and you're going to take it up to your face, and then you're going to take a deep in-breath and really slow and audibly, you're going to fog the mirror, Mm -hmm. right? And everyone makes that long (sighs) sound. Yeah, That's Ujjayi breath. So I have people do that a lot, and it's always a little bit strange because – when you learn to breathe in vinyasa-based yoga, when you do learn to do this ujjayi breath, you're intentionally doing something that's the opposite of what you would do in all other social situations. You don't, in any other social situation, try to make yourself- breath sound like something. Yeah, yeah, right.
0: Sorry, I don't mean to-
1: No, be, no, no, go like, for it.
0: Get caught up in the technical, but just for people who are listening yeah. who might. So you teach them to breathe into the mirror and then you say- Close your mouth, do the same thing. Yeah, so we, do it, we
1: do it with our mouth open several First, times. And then, okay. So I say to fog the mirror and then to unfog the mirror. And that then starts to create that aspirant and sibilant sound, yep. which is the Japam mantra, right? Which is the sound that's associated with ujjayi breath, right. right? And so to get people to understand that that sound is a mantra, right? That, that, that sound is a mantra. And so... It's not just the pacing of the breath, but it's the sound quality of the breath Mm -hmm. that is a brain focuser, Mm -hmm. right? So then I get people to do that with their mouth open and moving in half sun salutations and quarter sun salutations, other movements. And I'm regularly saying, you guys, I know, like, if this feels a little socially uncomfortable, like, I got it. Like, it's total weird. But this is how you actually have to learn it, okay? Next, we're
0: going to hold hands and stare into each other's eyes and do it.
1: Not going to do that, (laughs) right? Okay. So then I have people start with the mouth open Mm -hmm. and then close it and continue. Right. And here's the thing. And my beginning students, when I teach these programs, my beginning students after day two are better Ujjayi breathers than... Pretty much any other yoga student who's not gone through a similar process, because we just don't actually know. Like it's just as -hmm. yoga teachers. That's why I'm saying I'm not very good at it. I'm not very good at teaching this aspect of breathing, except for in the beginner's
0: context. Beginners, yeah.
1: Because if I Mm -hmm. did this on Tuesday and Thursday night in a level two, three vinyasa class, I would need to get a second job. This is one of these things where sometimes we also we just have to teach that thing and we have to break it down in really small little increments and then help people understand that the movement is in concert with with that pace. Right, right, right. Yeah.
0: I used to love the sound of the breath when you would walk into a Mysore room. Uh-huh. That was always really nice. But I have noticed over the years, some teachers like sort of get a, their panties in a twist about like... I don't want the breath to be loud, or I do want the breath to be loud. Where do you fall on that spectrum?
1: A lot of times, when people don't want the breath to be loud, it's because it's being overly forced and people are trying to use the throat too much and sort of pull and push air by using the vocal diaphragm. So it's quiet. It's Mm -hmm. very, very quiet, but it's subtly audible. To yourself. To yourself, and probably to to yourself, and probably probably maybe a little bit to the neighbor. Like anything, when you have a clear refinement, you go from a gross understanding to a subtle understanding, right? So you go from gross awareness to subtle awareness. And it's the same thing with the breath. You kind of have to make enough sound with the breath for a long period of time to then have it be so deeply understood that it can be quiet, but it's still focused on. Yeah. But if you try to learn it, with like, this is so quiet, only a dog that's on your lap can hear it, not even you. You know what I mean? Like okay. you just can't get too subtle too quick because that's not actually, that's not replicable got for it. most people, including myself.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Great.
1: And you know when it's hard to breathe? During backbends.
0: Oh yes. And we got a bunch of backbend yeah. questions.
1: It's really hard to breathe during bends.
0: Okay. So Don had the question of how do you build a backbending practice beyond wheel? Like you've got wheel, you want to sort of progress.
1: Right. Okay. So I think two things. One, this was one of my six week focuses about four or five months ago in all my public classes. And I just told everyone at the beginning of class, I said, Hey, everyone, everyone, What we're going to focus on for the next five to six weeks is we're going to focus on what I'm calling beyond Urdhva Dhanurasana or beyond upward facing bow or beyond wheel. And I said, almost every teacher in almost every flow class, including myself, get to Urdhva Dhanurasana and then stop. It's almost as if that is the last backbend that exists when in reality... That's kind of a a middle degree intensity backbend. For me, it's a big backbend, but in terms of theoretical capacity, that's that's a very mid-range backbend. Right. So how do we start to build beyond Urdhva Dhanurasana given that myself and the vast majority of teachers often don't go beyond it, Mm -hmm. right? So the first thing that I would do is identify what is actually beyond Urdhva Mm Dhanurasana in a logical progression. That's kind of the first thing you have to do is say, well, what's next, Mm -hmm. right? And for me, the poses that are immediately next, I'll give the English name and then the Sanskrit name. The first pose that's to me, after Urdhva Dhanurasana is called inverted staff pose, Viparita Dandasana. So you can think about it as headstand plus Urdhva Dhanurasana. Make sense? Yes. Okay. Oh, we had the whole Viparita Dandasana thing.
0: (laughs) Yes. We had
1: the whole conversation. So
0: it actually applies really well to the next question. Yes,
1: it does. Yeah. Okay. So Viparita Dandasana. And then the pose after that to me is to go back to bow or wheel mm-hmm. and do it one-legged. Right. And then to go to Viparita Dandasana and do it one-legged, mm-hmm. right? So now all of a sudden we have three poses after Ord Danyarasana. We have the one-legged version, we have the head-on-the-ground version, and then the one-legged head-on-the-ground version, mm-hmm. okay? Then when those poses are accessible, to me what that's starting to open the door to are are really the intermediate to experienced or to advanced level backbends. Or maybe a a bigger, better way to call it it is the big, hard backbends. Okay. You know? Mm -hmm. And to me, the big, hard arm overhead backbends, the next family is actually taking the the arms overhead and holding the foot in the pigeon pose family. Mm -hmm. So pigeon one, pigeon two – Pigeon four,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I skip pigeon three. I'm, I'm not even going to begin to try to describe it, but it's an absurd shape.
0: It's so crazy. The front legs in Virasana. My, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah,
1: you don't. It's, 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 it's the worst. But it's to see that that progression, and then not Okay, that is going to keep almost everyone's <laughs> hands busy for the next couple of years of backbends, mm-hmm. right? Then I would say after that, once all of those poses can be done, then it's time to do dropbacks. So I don't actually really like, and I don't really teach the walk in the hand down the wall version of dropbacks because of the asymmetry it introduces. I don't like that asymmetry. Mm -hmm. And kind of if, to me, if you need the wall to do dropbacks, you're probably not ready for dropbacks. Then there's just many other things that you need to work on to establish that ability. Mm -hmm then you can do drop back so you can do it with uh, the help of another. Mm-hmm. And if we, if we sort of think, too, then what are the factors involved in that? Well, the primary factors involved in backbends are length, flexibility on the front side of the body and strength and control on the back side of the body, right? So the lowest hanging fruit to work is for all backbends, Whether you're trying to develop bridge pose or a drop back, creating more flexibility in the quadriceps, more flexibility in the hamstrings, more flexibility in the anterior core, so especially the anterior abdominals, more flexibility in the front of the shoulders, right? And then also what can be a little bit overlooked is for the arm overhead back backbends, you also need more flexibility in the muscles that control or that inhibit lateral rotation of the scapula. So you need to create more flexibility in the inner border of the scapula muscles because mm-hmm. those scapula need to be able to laterally rotate. Right. The other side of that equation is you need to be strong. So hamstring strength, so all of the extensors, Hamstrings, glutes, outer hips, paraspinals, shoulders. Mm -hmm. It's that sweet spot, right? So those are the ways that I would work it. There's one more layer, which is like, this is super practical, but if you're trying to build beyond Urdhva Dhanurasana, bring Urdhva Dhanurasana earlier in the sequence. If you are thinking to yourself, I want to start to move beyond Urdhva Dhanurasana, then you want to start to treat Urdhva Dhanurasana as a preparatory pose, not a conclusion. And usually in a vinyasa yoga context, we think about it as a conclusion, not as a preparatory pose. So we got to just go ahead and and like not beat around the bush quite as much and like bring that pose earlier in the sequence. And so we have the actual time and the energy Mm -hmm. to scale beyond it. Well,
0: I just got to bring this up because it's got to be said. I'm not an Iyengar practitioner. I don't even go to Iyengar classes anymore. But I think that when I, you know, when I did, the proppings that I learned for the more advanced backbends were invaluable. So totally. the really complicated ones where you get a chair and a sandbag and 50 blocks and a belt and, you know, your older sister, those are for someone like me. And me. Yeah. Would you recommend for someone who's trying to advance and they're feeling like, oh, this doesn't really feel very good to go into this, to just try to go into this pose, where do they go from there?
1: I mean, you know, I'm always going to advocate for, I am not an Iyengar practitioner anymore either. And I've never been an Iyengar teacher, although of all the schools of yoga, that's the one that has influenced me the most. And the postural techniques and skills that i've learned from teachers in that tradition have helped me more specifically than anything else
0: mm-hmm.
1: the propped versions are unbelievably valuable and it's kind of one of these things too of like if you want to be a good chef there's no way around the fact you got to have amazing knife skills you have to use a knife mm-hmm. And you have to be trained for that and you have to do it a ton. And to me, it's so it's a little bit the same of unless you're a savant, like a physical, right. you just get in there and your body's made for it or you, or you did other physical disciplines at an early age that taught you things. If you're trying to learn harder, more complicated physical shapes, especially as, a, as an adult of any age, you can't do it on effort alone. Mm -mm. You just can't. You can't do it on like, I'm going to warm up and then do the thing. The harder the thing, the more you actually have to understand what's happening when you do the thing, the less that you can rely on raw effort. You can rely on raw effort when the thing is super easy. But when the thing is hard, you have to actually understand how to use efficient leverage, how to use the legs as levers and sort of the scapula as wedges and like all of these things that are so tedious to learn. But in my estimation, you kind of have to become pretty meticulous and you have to be willing to repeat things ad nauseum and drill Mm -hmm. when you're really doing those hard things. And that's kind of like propping in the Iyengar world is to me, that's a little bit like drilling like an athlete doing drills or a musician playing scales. Like you can't skip that step Mm -hmm. and be really good at the thing and do super difficult things unless you have just certain attributes that are pretty rare.
0: Right. I think for me, it was always just so such a relief if someone propped me really intelligently. It was like, oh, this is what it's supposed to feel like. And my nervous system can relax at the same time. Wow, this is yoga. This is why I'm doing totally. this. I don't think you teach any of those proppings on Yoga Glow, but I wonder maybe Marla App does just as a, as a resource for people.
1: Yeah. I've been taking i taking her classes yeah. on Yoga
0: Glow, but she's one of the best Iyengar teachers in the country. Yeah. So yeah. check her out.
1: And we had a, we had a question in the room uh, specifically about a specific prop. Yes which are those and they go by a lot of different names yeah. they first went by dharma wheel right i don't mean this native leash is coming there's like knockoffs of that yeah, original I, right yeah, there's, there's just a lot a of different a lot, lot of, of different, different brands ones. and the question is do they work and i will say for my body the answer is no for many bodies the answer is yes i used to have one someone gave me one and i tried to use it a ton of time the diameter was too big Thank and you. the surface was too hard and it didn't fit my proportions well enough. And so it was overly leveraged and it, it felt very cumbersome. Now, if I was more mobile, it would have worked well. So I have the right length, but the, the diameter of that, just the size of it mm-hmm. was for my body not super effective. Mm -hmm. The thing that was always nicest for me, speaking of the Iyengar world, is the Iyengar prop that's impossible for anyone to actually have at home, but they call it the whale. Oh yeah. Because it looks like a whale.
0: Yeah. Right. A wooden whale.
1: Because it's much more sloped, it follows up it follows a much more gentle curve.
0: I love that. And you
1: can change you can change your position on it in a very different way. I also am just a huge advocate for like I like the density and the size circumference of a foam roller. Yeah, me too. Right? So that works.
0: Also, the three-minute eggs. We like the three-minute eggs. If you've ever seen those, they're they're foam blocks, but they're shaped – they're oblong. And so if you get two of them and you put them vertically under your spine, you can open up that way and you can move them around. You can support your – legs with them. I mean there's all different kinds of yeah, things you can do with yeah. them.
1: So this isn't to say just to be really clear. This isn't to say those are bad props. Those those Right. It's right. just
0: that for the, me the they, for they didn't work
1: for me. Like if you're going to be a long-time runner, you're going to have some tools. You know, this shoes, those shoes, this orthotic, this knee brace, you know what I mean? If you're going to be a long-time yoga practitioner, you're going to have like you're going to have a closet full of yoga props. And then one or two of those things you're going to drag out regularly, and it's going to work. So I'm sure that wheel works really well. In fact, I remember us being at Stephanie Snyder's house once, yeah. and I like <laughs> I, I, looked I looked at that, I looked at that, and kind of winced. And she's like, "Oh, I love that thing." Yeah. So like, there there's an example of like like that it works, works really for well her for body. Her. So mm-hmm. it's obvious that it works for a lot of bodies, just not as much. Body.
0: Right. <laughs> I think our last question has to do with the proportions in to yes. Dandasana. Yes. And the question was basically, what if I feel like this is never, if this really isn't supposed to happen in my body? Is that true or not?
1: It's always difficult to answer this set of questions, which is what is changeable and what is not changeable? And everything is changeable until it gets to the point where it's not changeable. Identifying where, Range of motion stops and is unchangeable in a body requires actually an exam by someone that knows how to do those range of motion exams. Okay, so those can be done with certain joints of the body. Okay, I say it like this: If you just think about our faces, okay, like we all have eyes in the same place, we all have ears in the same place, we all have nose in the same place, we have different, we have lips in the same place. But we have very slight different geometry to all of those things. And it's the same thing with the rest of the body. We all have the same – not same organs, obviously, but same structure. Mm -hmm. But we all have slightly different proportions and slightly different geometry throughout the body. So different people are absolutely – going to be able to move into ranges of motion that other people are not going to be able to move into, right? And identifying exactly what is your end point and is this a soft, changeable point or is this a hard, non-changeable point? Again, like I said, can be done with, a, with certain clinical exams. It, so it's difficult to make conjecture, but I'll step back, I'll say another thing, which is yoga is for everybody. But all poses are not for everybody. Not even close. Yeah. Not even close, right? So what we can step back from and say, then how do I start to work towards my threshold and how do I know what's going to change and not change? The little experience that I can give you outside of clinical exam is – I know in my practice that I am 44 years old. I know that I have been doing this since I was- 44 years young, honey. Thank you. (laughs) I know that I've been doing yoga since I was 20. That's 24 years. Is my math still correct?
0: Yes.
1: (laughs) So I also know that there are many parts of my body that have not gone further at all in about 15 years. So guess what?
0: It's not going to happen. It ain't going anywhere. Mm -hmm.
1: Because it's not for lack of practice. It's not for lack of understanding. And my limited understanding of the aging process is you don't just magically become more flexible and more strong. (laughs) You know what I mean? So for me, it's a lot of working more skillfully with the body that I have instead of being in some sort of fantasy land about the body that my ego kind of wishes i had mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. so i think that's part of it but then i'll I'll put in one more layer to this and i'll relate it to the backbends props are great equalizers because for some people let's say let's say you have short arms relative to the length of your torso and you're wondering about or viparita dandasana right right
0: mm-hmm.
1: well there's ways that you can functionally make your limbs longer, which is usually by putting your feet on blocks mm-hmm. and elevating the whole chain, or putting your feet on a chair and lifting the whole plane. Now, is that always going to be enough for everyone? No. And we've proved no. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but like, you know what? We- I swear, you just put your feet on these blocks, boom, done.
1: But- but, Nope. Now wait a second. You know we got into this. Remind me. Did you get into it?
0: Oh, I did.
1: Did it hurt? Yes. So <laughs> that's where we. And were you there long? No. So that's where we have an existential not question. Long,
0: not even long enough to take an Instagram. No. Now. So disappointing.
1: So here's the thing, which is, I, we have this existential debate. You got into it. I did. It was not good. No. It hurt. It was very brief.
0: You didn't win the bet, honey.
1: I didn't win the bet. No, I acknowledge (laughs) I didn't win the bet. Good
0: yoga teacher. (laughs) I didn't win the
1: bet, but point is, is like this is this is where we have props, right? And also, my favorite backbends are the big advanced backbends, and I can't do them for a damn without belts. So like the pigeon pose family, the Natarajasana family, I can't hold my foot. Are you kidding? I can't hold my foot overhead. I can reach back and hold my foot, thank God. But (laughs) if I could do that, give me a break. But I can't reach overhead and grab my foot. But using the belt, the belt is such a great equalizer. And I love the feeling of those poses. I love the lift and the lightness and sort of the spaciousness of those poses. So that's where props, we have to understand, props aren't just designed so that... You use them as a stopgap till you can really do it. That's the ego's misunderstanding of a basic thing. Props are a tool. And tools help us do something that we can't really do as well otherwise. That's why I hate those those Instagram posts so much that are like, 2016, and there's like a belt, but it's like a quarter of an inch. And then it's like, 2018, and there's no belt. I'm just like, give me a break, okay? Okay. I guess it's fine, but to me, that's totally missing the entire point of what this discipline yes, is. Yes, I
0: feel very frustrated by those right? posts too.
1: Although I did one, and it was a great one.
0: I don't remember it. You got worse. My over time. utkatasana
1: <laughs> was the butt ba- utkatasana shot. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, so, anyways, but I, I understand. I understand that one of the things that fuels us in life is certain aspirational things. Sure. So I, I, I don't want to be too.
0: And it's fun to celebrate your own progress. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Agreed, agreed, agreed. All
0: right, we were just being curmudgeonly. Anyway.
1: Yeah, I'm good at it. But point on this is like, think about a prop as a tool. And you know what tools are? Tools are signs of an intelligent civilization.
0: This is super deep, you guys. Whoa.
1: That's why, look, I think like, (laughs) I'm going to go. Have you
0: been smoking pot or something? No. (laughs)
1: the ocean air.
0: Okay. He's dropped in on the no. retreat. I can feel it.
1: I have strong feelings.
0: <laughs>
1: you think you're the only one with strong feelings in this family?
0: No. <laughs>
1: no. <laughs> I think that one of the things that we really want to understand how to do is to use whatever networks help us do things with greater efficiency and skill. Yeah. And, and to get over the mythic notion that like all hard work pays off. Right. No, it doesn't.
0: That's, that's true. No, it no, that's actually a really good Like point. that
1: is just so – that's just like – so. it's such a childish thing.
0: Well, it's a thing that sets you up to feel that sort of perpetuates guilt and shame mm-hmm. a little bit. It's a thing that sets you up to feel like if you're not getting there, you haven't worked hard enough. Totally. Or you're not smart enough or you're just not good enough. And it's like – that is one of the lovely things about yoga and how it physically has evolved is that – I mean, it's such a beautiful thing that Iyengar did was to be like, oh, okay, there are some people who – we need to adapt this to. And then every anyone can enjoy the benefits without having to kill themselves. But for me, actually, that pose, um, it's actually not that pose on a chair. I was just thinking about this as you were talking. The pose that I love on a chair so much, which for some reason makes me feel like I'm getting the benefits of Viparita Dandasana, is like Satubanda with your... So, so you're laying back.
1: Are you through the chair?
0: Yeah, your feet are kind of through the chair. Yeah, that's viprada dandasana on, on a chair. chair. Okay, I thought it was. And then there's anyway, and then there's four one. different arm positions. It's a really good one because yeah. you can really open your chest because you're grabbing the chair legs with your arms and yeah. Anyway, so yeah. okay. Thanks as always for listening. You can find show notes for this episode at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 128. I found a photo of me doing that very propped version of Viparita Dandasana that Jason and I talk about at the end. So I'm going to put that on the show notes page in case you want to try it out because it feels really good. I'll also put some links to some of our advanced backbending blog posts, pose notebooks, sequences, yada, yada, yada. And I hope it was helpful to you. And until next week, enjoy your practice. I will be enjoying Hawaii.